Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski discuss your financial to-do list for March and how you can de-risk your portfolio. Then Ben Johnson and Susan Jabinski talk low volatility funds. And finally, Russ Kinnell fills us in on the top three funds losing their managers. Let's get started. Here are Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. March is here. And Morningstar's Christine Benz has brought some financial jobs to keep us busy this month. Hi, Christine. Thank you for being here. Hi, Susan. It's good to see you. So one of the things that you say should be on our financial to-do list for March is funding an IRA. But is there any reason that someone should be waiting until March, which is you know pretty close to the tax filing deadline, or should they really be thinking about investing IRA assets as soon as they can? Well, as soon as they can, ideally. So for 2022, for example, you were eligible to get those contributions in on January 1st. For the 2021 tax year, you were eligible to start contributing back in January of 2021. So ideally, you get those contributions in there and invested in something as soon as you possibly can. And the reason is, especially if you have a long time horizon, that the sooner you can get the money working for you, the more it can compound over your investing horizon. So one big fork in the road, and maybe one of the reasons that people sometimes procrastinate with an IRA is they're not really sure whether they should be making a Roth contribution or a traditional IRA contribution. How should they be thinking about that and and weighing the differences? You're right. That is a key fork in the road. A key thing that will be a determinant of which account type you can fund is your income level. So if you wanted to make a traditional deductible contribution, the income thresholds are lowest for that, assuming that you're covered by some kind of a company retirement plan at work. They're slightly higher for Roth IRA contributions. And even for people who are shut out of making a direct Roth contribution can make what's called a backdoor Roth IRA contribution where you're making a traditional IRA contribution and then converting that to Roth. So income levels will help you find your way there. But from there, I think the key thing you want to be thinking about is whether the tax break that you earn on having the investments in the IRA is better at the time you make the contribution or when you'll be pulling the money out in retirement. If you are in a higher tax bracket at the time of the contribution, you're generally better off making a traditional deductible contribution, assuming that your income level will allow you to do so. On the other hand, if you're someone who, where you think your income right now is at a relative low ebb relative to where it's apt to be in the future, you're a good candidate for doing a Roth IRA contribution. So give a little bit of thought to that. For young accumulators, I usually say the Roth IRA is, is probably a good bet because their income level and their tax bracket is low relative to what it might be in the future. On the other hand, I would say for um, people who are fairly late in their investment career and maybe at a high earnings level relative to the whole of their careers, they may be a good candidate for making a traditional deductible IRA contribution. So Christine, what about spouses who aren't earning incomes? Can, Can they make contributions? 
They can. And I love this question, Susan, because a lot of times you will have a non-earning spouse, often kind of the primary child caregiver. And it's really valuable if the couple can swing it to make a contribution on behalf of the non-earning spouse. The key thing you'd need to have in that case is that the earning spouse would just need to have enough income to cover the whole family's contributions. But it's a great thing to do to, to keep retirement contributions going, even if someone's not currently earning a paycheck. So Christine, what about IRA contributions for older adults? You know, have the rules changed around that? Is it possible or is it even advisable for a retiree, say, to invest in an IRA? Yeah, great set of questions. Roth IRAs have not had age limits, but historically traditional IRAs have had age limits. Those were lifted as part of the SECURE Act. So now you can make a traditional or Roth IRA contribution at any age, as long as you have earned income. And that is a key uh, factor that might limit older adults' ability to make contributions. If their income is just coming from Social Security or a pension or from their portfolio, they will not be able to make an IRA contribution because they don't have the earned income to qualify. So that is uh, something to think about. Whether those contributions are advisable, I think is kind of a separate question, but I would say a key category of older adult who should think about making additional IRA contributions would be folks who are saving primarily for the next generation where they want their heirs, whether children or grandchildren, to inherit the accounts. They're a super candidate for making those additional IRA contributions provided they have the earned income because they have enough time, presumably, for the money to compound and grow and benefit from the tax deferral. So I, I think that that's a group of people who ought to consider additional IRA contributions. So we've, we've talked in the past quite a bit about the types of investments to put in an IRA, and that's really kind of a, a challenge um, that we still see in the industry is that people will open those IRAs, they will put money into an IRA, but then they won't actually invest the money that's in that IRA in something. So are there any sort of easy answers about what to invest your IRA assets in? Yeah, I think it's overwhelming for a lot of people. You have all the choices in the world that you could put within an IRA. A really easy answer to me, especially for younger accumulators or even people in the middle of their careers, would be to look at some kind of a target date fund as kind of a one-stop, hands-off, low-maintenance solution. On the other hand, um, I would say for people who have well-established portfolios, they might use index funds to kind of augment the exposures or maybe to add to asset classes um, where they are light elsewhere in their portfolios and there they can use really inexpensive index funds. I think those would be some of the easiest choices that people might use to populate their IRA portfolios. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about another financial to-do for March. And this one is um, funding a health savings account. Um, and again, if you fund it before April 18th, that's the deadline for the 2021 HSA contributions. So can anyone make a, an HSA contribution? What are the rules around that? 
Right. Good question, Susan. And I think people salivate when they read about the great tax benefits that come along with HSAs. The key thing to know is that in order to make an HSA contribution, you need to be covered by a qualifying high deductible health care plan. So if you're covered by Medicare, if you're covered by a PPO, you won't be able to make an HSA contribution. You need to be covered by a certain type of health care plan in order to be eligible. And then, you know, another question that comes up with HSAs is kind of similar to the IRA question, which is what do you invest those HSA funds in? You know, if you are looking for something that's maybe a little bit more of a long-term investment, you know, do you stick with, if you're working with your employer, do you stick with your employer's HSA plan? Well, that's a good question. So in terms of the investment types to populate the HSA with, I would use kind of my use case to determine what to invest in. So if I'm using my HSA to cover my healthcare costs as I incur them, I would stick with the savings account. I wouldn't want to be taking a lot of risks with my investments. If I'm using it as a long-term sort of ancillary retirement savings vehicle, well, there you probably do want to take more risk. And of course, it depends on your proximity to retirement retirement and to tapping into those funds. But assuming you have a nice long runway to retirement, I would invest in something pretty aggressive. I'd invest, you know, in maybe a a static allocation fund or even an all equity index fund for that portion of the portfolio. Kind of a separate question is whether I'm wedded to my employer provided HSA or whether I can go outside of it. And, And the answer is absolutely you can transfer assets periodically to the HSA of your own choosing. And that's a really nice workaround, Susan, for people who have maybe a not great company provided HSA. They can indeed uh, use some other HSA and transfer the funds out. They can use payroll deductions to put the money in, but then periodically do a transfer to another HSA. And and that's where I think our team's work on HSAs is so valuable in terms of helping people navigate those choices. So Christine, our last financial to do for March has to do with inflation protection and looking at it in your portfolio and sort of in your own personal balance sheet. And it seems like a timely topic for so many of us right now, right? It absolutely is. And by the way, March is a busy month with these to-dos, but it is a good time, I think, to take stock of how well insulated you are from inflationary pressures. We've seen rising prices almost everywhere we look, whether um, you know filling up our cars with gas or heating our homes or in the grocery store. So I think the key thing you want to be thinking about is looking at how your expenses have changed over the past year and also thinking about how inflation protected your income sources have been in the face of higher prices. So if you're earning a salary, you want to check into whether you have been able to negotiate a higher salary. Has your employer been helping you stay whole even as we've seen higher prices come online. If you're someone who's retired, you have most likely received a nice inflation adjustment from Social Security to the extent that you're receiving Social Security. But if you're withdrawing from your portfolio for a portion of your income, you want to make sure that that portfolio has some inflation protection as well. So stocks we know are over long periods of time likely to outrun inflation. If you have bonds in your portfolio, you might also consider a component of 
Treasury Inflation Protected Securities or I-bonds. And you might also consider additional asset classes, perhaps some commodities exposure, perhaps some sort of floating rate investment. I wouldn't use them as core investments, but they're investments that have historically done a decent job of hedging against inflation. Well, Christine, thank you so much for giving us some financial marching orders for the coming month. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Christine Benz reviews your portfolio's risk. So what do we do with all of this? How do we create an action plan? Well, I think it's important to approach this um, really getting back to your life stage. I would argue that if you've gone through this exercise, if you've flagged some areas where perhaps you're taking too much risk in your portfolio, so if you found that your portfolio's equity allocation is really, really high and you're planning to retire in the next couple of years, I would argue at that life stage, de-risking that portfolio is imperative. On the other hand, if you are someone who is in your 30s or 40s, there's probably less of a need to, to de-risk in a really big way. Um, you may want to make some changes around the margins, so you might want to peel back from U.S. and put more money toward non-U.S. stocks, but it's a little less urgent if you are embarking on retirement in 20 years or more. On the other hand, many people who are younger, who are saving for retirement, are simultaneously saving for other goals. So maybe it's a home down payment or some other goal that's closer at hand. De-risking those assets is mission critical. So even if you have a long time horizon to retirement, if you have other things that you want to accomplish in the next five or 10 years or even fewer, de-risking that portion of the portfolio is really, really important. So put that at the top of your list when it comes to deciding whether to take action. The key issue is if you've gone through this process and you've determined that you need to make changes, it's important to watch out for transaction costs, so those, although those are increasingly less of an issue given that we've kind of moved into this no transaction cost environment. But a key thing to keep an eye on is tax costs that you might incur. And so that's one reason why if you've gone through this process and you need to make some tweaks, whether peeling back on U.S. stocks or whatever the case might be, it's best to start that process within your tax-sheltered accounts, so within your IRAs and 401ks, other retirement plan assets. Start that process within those accounts because you can do all of the tinkering that you want within those accounts without triggering any tax costs. If you're subject to required minimum distributions, so if you're over age 72 and you're subject to those RMDs, I think it makes all the sense in the world to annually pull those RMDs from the positions that you're most overweight in. So if you need to make changes to your portfolio, 
and you're subject to RMDs, why not do both at the same time? So for a lot of RMD subjective investors, my view is that peeling back U.S. stocks, specifically U.S. growth stocks, is probably a rich vein to mine if you're doing some rebalancing. If you are moving on to your taxable accounts, so if you've done some repositioning within your tax-sheltered accounts and you decide that your taxable accounts are too aggressive or you want to make changes, a good thing to do to avoid triggering a tax bill is to potentially add new assets. So if you're still adding to those accounts, to put the, uh, put the new additions to that portion of the portfolio into the underweight holdings. That's a tax efficient way to rebalance your taxable accounts. You may or may, may, or may not be able to get back to your target allocation using that strategy, but it does tend to be a good tax efficient way to start. And it's certainly something that people who are adding to their portfolio should think about. Next, here is Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services discussing low volatility funds. Hi, I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar. As their name suggests, low volatility funds are designed to offer better downside protection, a smoother ride, and better risk-adjusted performance than the market long-term. Joining me today to discuss how these funds have held up so far in Rocky 2022 is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Director of Global ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Nice to see you. Hi, Susan. Great to see you, too. So let's start out with a brief introduction for what low volatility funds are and what role they might play in a portfolio. Well, Susan, I, I think you said it well. The, the expectation with low volatility funds is that over a sufficiently long period of time, investors will get exposure to a particular corner of the equity market, be it U.S. large and mid-caps, emerging market stocks, developed international stocks with a lower degree of volatility. It'll be a bit smoother ride. Now, that's not necessarily always going to be the case. These funds aren't going to bat a 1,000, taking a little bit of the sting out of each and every downdraft in the market. But if you give them long enough, if you can stick with them long enough, the expectation is that you'll get market-like returns over a long period of time with less risk, which at least in theory might make it somewhat easier to stick with that portfolio. So in all of the various implements that uh, investors have at their disposal, all the different levers that they can pull to reduce the overall level of risk within their diversified portfolios, this is, is really a fine tuner. So for those out in our audience that are old enough to remember good old fashioned stereo receivers that had a crude tuner that would get you from 88.3 to 107.9 with a quick flick of, of the wrist, this is not what you're looking for. That has more to do with your decisions around your allocation between cash and stocks and bonds. This is a precision instrument. It's that fine tuner that gets you from 93.1 to 93.9 with precision. It dials down the risk specifically within your equity sleeve and just a little bit more often than not. So then now these funds can pursue, you know, different uh, uh, types of strategies to achieve these sort of 
more muted um, risk results. Now, are there a few approaches that are more common among low volatility funds? Well, generally speaking, Susan, there are, are two most common approaches, and they're very nuanced in, in how they differ. Uh, one common approach, an approach applied by certain ETFs that are underpinned by S&P low volatility indexes, look to build the portfolio that comprises the least volatile stocks in a given selection universe. So say, for example, the S&P 500, that portfolio will pick the least volatile members of the S&P 500 index based on the standard deviations of their returns over the preceding 12 months. So the least volatile stocks is one approach to constructing a low volatility portfolio. The other approach that is quite common is to produce the least volatile portfolio of stocks possible from a given selection universe. Now, least volatile stocks, one approach, least volatile portfolio, the other most common approach. Now, what the least volatile portfolio approach might entail is actually owning some stocks that might be quite volatile, among the most volatile in the market. But in doing so, what that does is it balances out other stocks that might be held in that same portfolio. And what you see is that there are trade-offs between these two approaches. And the most significant of those, I would argue, is that in the case of picking the least volatile stocks without anchoring to the characteristics of that selection universe, you can take certain unintended risks. You can see very significant sector concentrations, for example, crop up in those portfolios from time to time, which might not necessarily always be rewarded, which might not necessarily always align with the portfolio's low volatility objective. So these very fine, nuanced differences between these approaches to portfolio construction can lead to very different outcomes over a long period of time. So it's important that investors understand uh, all of the various devils that reside within these fine details. So then, Ben, given that, you know, what is a, a fair expectation for an investor ha to have for a low volatility fund over time? What really is realistic? Well, I think first and foremost, investors should be focused, as always, on the very long term. As we've seen in each and every market episode that we might experience, these funds aren't necessarily going to perform as investors might expect. We saw this in the case of the drawdown in early 2020 uh, that was induced by the COVID crisis. And what we saw is that in many cases, low volatility ETFs underperform their more common vanilla counterparts, uh, drawing down even further on the bottom. And was what was worse still, though what should have been expected, is that when markets bounced off that bottom and roared higher, these funds lagged quite badly to the upside and gave up, in many cases, most of their outperformance that they had experienced from their inception. What we've seen more recently for the, the year to date in 2022 is that depending on the day, depending indeed on, on the week, uh, low volatility funds have either done better or worse than their common vanilla market cap counterparts. Indeed, at one point, as recently as a week ago, 
high beta stocks were outperforming low volatility stocks for the year to date, reflecting the fact that energy stocks have really been on a tear uh, as a result of the spike we've seen in, in energy prices. So investors need to understand that at any given moment, these portfolios might not necessarily perform as expected. They need to take a deep breath, take a step back, take the long view, and that, know that fairly reliably over a sufficiently long period of time, they've offered less volatility than owning the market outright. And they've offered, depending on the time frame, market-like returns, though that promise is, has been somewhat hindered recently by virtue of the fact that they lagged on the upside as markets rebounded from the depths of the 2020 sell-off. So then let's probe a little bit more on, on 2022 so far and how these funds have done as a group in this market and you know which strategies have maybe outperformed a little bit more than others. And have there been any surprises here from your perspective? Yeah, so what was really surprising was, as I had alluded to earlier, as recently as just a week ago for the year to date, what we saw was that the S&P high beta ETF, SPHB, had outperformed for the year to date the standard S&P 500 ETF. So I'll use the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF IVV as a proxy here, which in turn had outperformed the Invesco S&P Low Volatility ETF, SPLV. So as the markets were getting rocky, what we saw is that the riskiest stocks were outperforming the market at large, which in turn was outperforming the least risky stocks, which you know, at face value would seem to make absolutely no sense, uh, which, as I mentioned before, really reflects more so than anything the fact that energy stocks have outperformed the broad market by a very wide margin up through that point. Now, fast forward to today, one week hence, and what we see is that the re-ranking among those same three funds has, has gotten back to what an investor might expect. Now, SPHB is still outperformed both IVV and SPLV on a year-to-date basis, but one week later, the low volatility portfolio, SPLV, is now outperforming IVV, the standard S&P 500 ETF, on a year-to-date basis. So really, I think what this emphasizes more so than anything is the lack of, of sort of utility that investors will get by peeking in on these portfolios each and every day, each and every week, and even sometimes on a monthly basis. And what we see, again, over a sufficiently long horizon is that these relationships that we would expect tend to hold. And you see that shine through in the long-term risk-adjusted returns of the low volatility portfolios relative to standard market capitalization-weighted ETFs relative to ETFs that invest in the market's riskiest stocks. So Ben, let's talk a little bit now about the long-term. What, what are, give us a couple of low volatility ETFs that you think are good long-term holdings for, for a portfolio. Well, if you look at the entire menu of, of low volatility ETFs, which invest in everything from US large caps to mid caps to small caps, emerging market stocks, developed international, there's just one Morningstar medalist among their ranks. 
And that's the iShares Minimum Volatility ETF. USMV is the ticker. USMV retains a Morningstar analyst rating of silver. And what we like about it is it takes that latter approach that I had described earlier to portfolio construction, looking at all of the stocks in the MSCI USA index and looking to build out of those raw materials the least volatile portfolio possible. And in doing so, what it does is it avoids some of the risks that that second approach, looking just for the least volatile stocks, might take uh, in the course of, of building its own portfolio, specifically certain sector risks, steep sector concentration that may or may not always pan out as an investor might expect. So we like that it maintains a level of diversification. We like that it looks at stocks characteristics more holistically. And what we see is that since its inception, what it has done has delivered an outcome that an investor would expect a meaningful increment lower in terms of its volatility. Uh, it participates less on the downside. As a trade-off, it participates less on the upside. And what we've seen is that it has delivered uh, risk-adjusted returns that have ultimately been comparable to the market's returns. Uh, so USMV is the one and only Morningstar medalist among the whole lot of low volatility strategies available in an ETF wrapper to investors today. Well, Ben, thank you for your time and for helping unpack these particular funds. Um, it's a very timely conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. And lastly, here is Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Several high-profile fund manager changes have been announced during the past several months. Here with me today to talk about three of those changes is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Nice to see you, Russ. Hi, Susan. So how do our fund analysts assess a fund manager change? And what impact could a fund manager change have on our fund analyst ratings? Yeah, so every manager change in some ways is different, but what we're really getting at is uh, who, who are, who's taking over? Do they have experience? How deep is the team? Uh, do we expect them to make changes? Do they have a track record? If they have a track record, is that uh, in, in, this, in a similar strategy? So we're, we're looking at all those factors to assess uh, is this still as good a fund as it, as it used to be? Or maybe every once in a while, it's actually an upgrade, but that's, that's less common. So uh, we, we think you know, managers are a really important uh, part of the process. And so every situation is different. Sometimes a, a, a transition is very jarring. Sometimes it's very well planned. Uh, so, so really, each case is different. So sometimes we'll uh, downgrade a, a fund. Sometimes we'll maintain that rating. So, you know, as a rule of thumb, then, an investor shouldn't necessarily be alarmed if, you know, he or she finds out that, you know, their fund manager is changing, right? Not at all. Uh, I do think it's something that you want to keep on top of. If you've got actively managed funds, that's part of the, the task of, of owning those funds is keeping on top of them, monitoring that change, and ideally even having some notes as to how important that manager is. 
uh, for, for buying it. But yeah, you, you definitely want to uh, look. Obviously, you can look at our analysis and see our take, but I don't think you necessarily uh, simply want to sell just because the manager is changing. So let's take a, a look at a few manager changes that have been announced recently. Um, the first up would be uh, one of the co-managers at Oakmark Select is planning to retire this summer. Talk a little bit about that one and the magnitude there. Uh, yeah, so Wynn Martin is, is retiring uh, from Oakmark Select this summer, uh, but Bill Nygren, the lead manager, and Tony Canaris, uh, an associate manager, are, are still there. So that's not uh, changing our, our high pillar, uh, people pillar rating, or our overall uh, rating. Uh, so we think it's it's meaningful, uh, but uh, Nigrin is still very much there, um, and and so we still have a lot of faith as well as uh, in in the co-manager Tony Canaris. Um, and it is worth noting though that Nigrin is not that far from uh, retirement age, so it's something we're going to continue to watch. But uh, his retirement is not imminent, and and we feel really good about the people who are still there at the time. Um, also, this summer, we're seeing a retirement from Vanguard Wells Income. Um, Michael Reckmeyer, who is the lead equity manager on that fund, is, is going to retire. What about That's that right. one? Uh, Michael Reckmeyer of, of Wellington is, is going to retire. Uh, Matthew Hand is, is going to take his place. And this is on the equities part of, of Vanguard Wellesley. Uh, and so uh, they both work for Wellington, and, and Hand has been working on the fund for a long time. So we feel pretty good. Uh, about that transition, but it's still a pretty important one that we'll want to watch closely now. Because it's Vanguard and Wellington, we have a fair amount of confidence that uh, there, there's not going to be a, a meaningful strategy shift, uh, but will execution be as good? We'll, we'll be watching closely. And then lastly, you know, this is was pretty big news. Towards the end of 2021, Fidelity announced that Joel Tillinghast will be leaving Fidelity low-priced stock at the end of 2023. And again, this one seems a little bit more significant, no? This one's huge because uh, I think you really have a singular talent of Joel Tillinghast that has kept Fidelity low-priced stock uh, performing brilliantly, even though it's a very large fund with a very big portfolio uh, trying to invest primarily in small and mid-cap names. It's a really difficult thing to do for a single manager uh, and, and Tillinghast is a really unique talent. So uh, we've, even though the, the, the good thing is the transition is obviously a very gradual one. We're talking about end of 2023. Uh, but even so, because our rating is a forward-looking rating, we've lowered the fund one notch to bronze. That's uh, not a big knock on, on the replacement managers, Sam Chanovitz and Morgan Peck. It's more that uh, there's only one Tillinghast uh, and the, 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 the people replacing him are, are have uh, experience, but we don't have a lot of a track record for them. And again, this is a really unusual fund, a very challenging assignment uh, to run so much money in small and mid-cap stocks. So it's definitely something to to watch closely. I think there, this is just one of those funds uh, where, where the identity is, is uniquely tied up to the manager. And so definitely something to watch uh, in 2023 and 2024. Well, Russ, thank you for your time today and for putting some of these pretty high-profile fund manager changes into perspective. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. 
please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.